Welcome to episode 148 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest, uh, uh, Corin Stone, who is the executive director of the National Security Agency. Uh, and uh, for the uh, news roundup, uh, we have Alan Cohn, formerly with DHS, now of, of Council to Steptoe, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, our uh, litigator uh, par excellence and uh, uh, chair of our class action practice. Uh, uh, Maury Schenk, uh, formerly the managing partner in Steptoe's London office and uh, an advisor on European technology and cybersecurity issues. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in. Uh, uh, the Second Circuit uh, picked up the Microsoft Ireland case and uh, uh, juggled it around and put it back down more or less where it found it. Uh, Alan, uh, uh, what actually happened in the Ireland case? So this is the uh, this is the case for those who've been following along at home uh, where uh, the court issued a warrant under the uh, under section 2703 of the Stored Communications Act. Um, to uh, compel Microsoft to produce uh, records, email uh, records that were stored on a server located in Dublin, Ireland. And uh, the the Southern District of New York uh, stepped in and uh, enforced the warrant, but the Second Circuit uh, uh, quashed it at uh, at the request of Microsoft. Now the on rehearing... Uh, the Second Circuit denied, uh, denied the petition for a rehearing, um, on an evenly divided vote. So four, uh, four judges in favor, four judges opposed. And it was a, it was an interesting kind of 55 page, uh, decision on the, uh, on the, the petition for rehearing on Bonk, um, uh, to, uh, where you had a concurring opinion and then you had Four separate uh, dissents. Uh, in the concurring, so the opinion, concurring opinion, uh, basically, the, the concurring opinion was the point of the concurring opinion was to say we were right the first time, uh, uh, and uh, pay no attention to all these other lawyer, uh, all these other judges who are trying to uh, uh, get the case either uh, reheard or uh, um, signaling to the Supreme Court that uh, this is a good case for cert. Yes, and they do so all kind of saying, look, the, the Stored Communications Act may have been left behind by technology and it may be overdue for a revision, but that's Congress's job. Um, and they, uh, and they pointed to the, the underlying Second Circuit decision, which focused on the extraterritorial application or lack of it, uh, of the Stored Communications Act. So pretty close, pretty close decision, uh, uh overall. Uh, uh, there were three judges that had to recuse themselves. Judge Lynch, who'd been, um, a very active, uh, in the Second Circuit, uh, panel, was senior, so he didn't get to vote. Um, this, uh, uh, what's striking is how many, uh, judges were missing from this discussion. Yes. Uh, yes. So that reduced down, uh, the pool and made the decision, as you said, um, Quite close. Although it's interesting, the, the dissenting judges uh, kind of divided up the uh, the arguments amongst them, and you had overlapping 
dissents in which each of the four judge, uh, judges kind of joined the others. And there were a couple of themes that were, that were echoed in those. Um, uh, Judge, Jake, uh, Judge Jacobs kind of focused on the fact that uh, electronic documents are not analogous uh, to paper documents and uh, makes the, makes the assertion, uh, where in the world is the Bitcoin, which is a, which is a topic for another dis- discussion. Um, uh, Judge Cabranes focused on the law enforcement and national security aspects, uh, in essence accusing the, uh, the, the underlying opinion of providing a roadmap, uh, for criminality. Uh, uh Judge Taggy, um, focusing on the fact that the, the decision essentially sets an absolute bar uh, on warrants like this and noting that warrants under Section 2703 of the Stored Communications Act are different uh, than other types of warrants. They are not searches or seizures. Uh, they are kind of compelling disclosure uh, from, uh, from the company, uh, which is different and has to do with where is their access versus... Um, uh, versus where is their location, uh, and just so going to be looking at the privacy aspect. So at, at the end of the day, though, uh, nothing has changed. Uh, lots of storm and drong and uh, uh, no change. The Second Circuit still says uh, you can't enforce it. Uh, um, maybe there's a little more likelihood that this will go to the uh, a Supreme Court, but the Solicitor General has to decide he wants to take it there. And uh, um, this was an eight eight uh, an eight eight uh, member court saying uh, evenly divided uh, will affirm it. That could happen in the Supreme Court too. I'm not sure the SG is going to think that this is the right case to take up on cert. They may prefer to go looking for another circuit that will disagree with the Second Circuit and uh, take that one up. They may prefer to go to Congress. Uh, uh, so for now, at least, the law remains unchanged. Yes. Okay. Um, so Theresa May came to town, uh, met with Donald Trump, uh, talked about uh, um, sanctions uh, uh, on Russia uh, and Brexit. Uh, uh, Maury, what are we to make of this meeting? Well, you know, it's not exactly a cyber law meeting or not at all a cyber law meeting, really. But I think this relationship is an important one. It, Theresa May is the standard bearer for one of the shock votes of 2016 Brexit and Donald Trump is himself the embodiment of the other one. They're both finding that their agenda is running into some problems with inconvenient constitutions written in the case of the U.S. and unwritten in the case of the U.K. under a recent U.K. Supreme Court decision. Uh, they seem to have gotten along very well, even holding hands at one point, although it seems that maybe that was because uh, President Trump has difficulty walking down slopes. But um, there was a there wasn't much substance, but it does suggest that uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are going to stay closely aligned. Um, on Russian sanctions, which you mentioned, Trump has been slow to lift sanctions, perhaps backing off against uh, from the worries that he would quickly embrace Putin. So maybe that was influenced. And do we 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 think that uh, uh, Theresa May sort of encouraged him not to uh, uh, lift sanctions too quickly? I, yes. I mean, that seems to be. You know, the the U.K. has been one of the leaders in Europe on pressing for tough uh, continued Russian sanctions against the, the likes of Germans and some of the Eastern European countries. And so um, we we think she probably encouraged in that direction. 
Well, I, you know, famously, it was another female uh, uh, prime minister who said to another uh, uh, groundbreaking President Reagan, uh, this is no time to go wobbly. Uh, so maybe that's uh, uh, what she said uh, on Russian sanctions. Uh, uh, and, and if I'm, I understand on Brexit, uh, which is, of course, all that anybody is talking about in uh, uh, London, uh, um She's basically taken the Supreme Court decision, which said she had to go to Parliament in stride and said, okay, here's a uh, 10 word uh, authorization to uh, uh, leave uh, the European Union and I want uh, uh, the uh, Parliament to vote on it soon. That is indeed what she has said. I'm not sh- sure. I, I doubt that that simple just trigger Article 50, which is the exit process uh, that the short bill will get through. Uh, there's already been some significant opposition within the Tory party. And, you know, she, without unified Tory support, it's unlikely that she'll get a short bill through. There will probably be lots of debate and who knows where it's going to end up. OK, um, so you're you're absolutely right uh, that um, uh, constitutional challenges are mounting on this side of the Atlantic to uh, uh, some of the things that uh, President Trump has done through executive orders. We've got demonstrations in uh, uh, our uh, airports uh, over the uh, uh, immigration uh, policies that he implemented, and he's already pushed ba- uh, uh, a couple of them back. He got rid of the green card uh, um, uh, ban on uh, uh, returning to the U.S. Uh, in terms of cyber law, the thing that probably has gotten the most attention is the uh, uh, statement in an earlier executive order saying that the Privacy Act would not apply to foreigners um, except to the extent required by law. And uh, there was a whole... Uh, flap over that, which I think is slowly coming to an end as uh, Europe realizes that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any change in the deal that the U.S. worked out with uh, uh, Europe on applying the Privacy Act to uh, certain Europeans. The uh, um, That was done through a separate act, the Judicial Redress Act. It is now law. There has been a designation uh, as of February 1. It will apply. Uh, and so my guess is, unless this uh, order is read very broadly, that that will continue to uh, uh, go into effect. And what we'll have instead is a determination that uh, no agency should be applying the Privacy Act to foreigners as a matter of discretion. Is that how you read it, Mari? Well, I think you're right, Stuart, on the on the law. The, it doesn't what President Trump did doesn't have to disrupt the data flows between Europe and the U.S. But I think there's two problems. First of all, as with some of the administration's other actions, there's a lot of risk into throwing something like this into a complex relationship. Uh, during the adoption of the Privacy Shield, uh, this um, the Judicial Redress Act, which is related to the Privacy Act here, was cited as one of the things that gave Europeans greater privacy rights. And there's also the linkages to the Umbrella Agreement, although I won't get you summarize the details of that well. More broadly, I think there's a point of principle here for Europeans, which is you know, if you live in Europe, 
and you're a resident, in general, your privacy rights are the same, whether you're a citizen of the EU, of the country that you're in, another EU country or a foreign country. Europeans don't like it. That That's not the case in the U.S. And this basically makes it a free-for-all. You know, the, the National Park Service could take all the European tourist information and give it to whoever they want under this. And I think that that mm-hmm. attitude is problematic from a European perspective. So, I, uh, fair enough. I, uh, I, we may be bound for a confrontation with Europe over uh, uh, privacy. Uh, uh, most of those fights in the past, I mean, fight after fight after fight after fight, has been picked by Europe, uh, uh, saying we don't like this about U.S. law. We decided to get rid of the deal that we had because uh, um, our courts don't like it or our privacy groups or our data protection authorities don't like it. Uh, and they keep throwing out agreements that they've done with the United States. Uh, uh, but this time it's possible that the U.S. will say, you know, I'm not going to pay you for that damn mule again. Uh, uh, let's settle this once and for all as opposed to keep uh, making concessions and getting very little back from from Europe. Uh, that would, As you can tell, that's probably my view, uh, more than the Trump administration's view, but I'm channeling um, uh, the art of the deal here, uh, and it may be that uh, 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 President Trump will say um, the, the, the art of the deal has not been practiced with Europe on this issue. Well, I think it's a matter of perspective. You're absolutely right that on privacy, where Europe has a distinct agenda, most of the demands have come from the European direction. And I think it's been bad for uh, bad for Europe, bad for the relationship and bad for being able to do Internet business in Europe. Uh, there are other areas of law where the U.S. makes the demand, sanctions and things like that. And in this one, I think this may be a case where somebody says, stop, the U.S. can't go this far. It's going to be bad for U.S. companies if the, if a mess is made of these delicate privacy relationships and, and do Americans want some privacy for, you know, for, to accord some privacy rights to foreigners? We'll find think, out. Uh, you- yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Silicon Valley could get hurt badly, uh, if the U.S. and the EU, uh, come to blows over this issue. Uh, and I have to say, if I were Silicon Valley, my head would be spinning at how fast I lost traction in Washington from being really, you know, everybody's favorite industry uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, from immigration to privacy, uh, this administration is much less worried about what will be good for Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think they'll be in regroup mode for a while until they see how some of uh, the Trump administration's initial proposals play out. So they might like what's happening at the FTC. Uh, uh, the, uh, the new acting chairman, uh, uh, chairman Olhausen has been very critical of the FTC's, uh, consequence-free or, uh, uh, harm-free, injury-free determination that they can impose, uh, uh, sanctions on companies that have security flaws, even if the security flaws haven't been demonstrated to cause harm. Um, a, a Jennifer, uh, uh, how much do we know about, uh, acting chair Olhausen's views on this? Well, quite a bit, actually, because she's got a long track record as a prolific dissenter and speaker, including some remarks she made just last week before she was named acting 
chair. So uh, the concern or the, I guess, the sort of hope, depending on your perspective, is that um, with respect to, you know, there are two prongs of enforcement, the uh, deceptive practices and the unfair uh, practices. And, and with respect to the unfairness uh, prong, she has indicated that she is going to steer the FTC's enforcement authority towards cases where uh, sort of uh, cybersecurity issues have led to a significant and tangible harm to consumers, not just some abstract notion uh, that the uh, measures implemented by companies were unreasonable and inadequate. So uh, the hope is that she is going to provide some of the guidance as to what are reasonable measures that industry has long uh, sought. That is, of course, if she ever. Oh, gets, maybe. That is, if she ever gets to keep her job, Stuart. Which I guess you were going to comment. Well, and and it's not it's it, it's 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 not at all clear she's going to keep it. Uh, uh, there are, there are stories saying that Peter Thiel is out uh, um, recruiting for the antitrust positions, which certainly the uh, chair of the FTC is, and um, he doesn't seem to be looking. Uh, at her, uh, I noticed that there's a picture of him with uh, President Trump in which he and President Trump are holding hands. This seems to be the theme of the week. Uh, he's a hand holder. I don't think I've ever seen o- Obama hold hands with uh, another leader. Right? Uh, uh, I know George Bush held hands at least with the king of Saudi Arabia. So uh, we may be back. Uh, you know, maybe uh, Republicans are the, the hand holding party. Okay. Only, only time um, will tell, Stuart. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I, I, uh, you heard that trend here first. Uh, 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 the the Trump administration is working on something on cybersecurity. There have been leaked drafts of a cybersecurity order. I would I would characterize the order that was leaked as pretty procedural. You know, uh, these guys will give me this report by that date, and these other guys will give me another report by another date, and then we'll uh, combine them into a, a final report, and then uh, uh, somebody else will fly in with their own report and met, meet up with the other reports. Uh, I'm not convinced that's the direction that the uh, administration will go they they they've been much more inclined to say yeah why don't we just you know we know what we want let's just start doing it um so we'll just have to see what finally comes out of uh, uh, the administration on cybersecurity but uh, i think it's highly likely we'll see something in the next week or so and let's see um oh uh, China, uh, uh, people have come back from meetings in China, uh, uh, talking about what the Chinese are saying about attribution. And it is, um, surprisingly, well, maybe it's not surprising. It is deeply hostile to the idea that you can do attribution. Uh, uh, there was a, a, a good analysis by Adam Siegel, uh, uh of, uh, what he heard from the Chinese in their latest sort of informal meeting. Uh, and, uh, it was basically, uh, we don't think you can do attribution well and Therefore, we're skeptical about the attribution of the hack to uh, uh, Russia. Um, and uh, uh, in any event, we're not sure that you should be engaged in or you, we don't think your public discussions uh, have much deterrence value. Uh, um, a, and, and then I thought kind of 
relevant to our last interview uh, with Jack Goldsmith, uh, the Chinese are clearly loving the idea that the U.S. is complaining about uh, fake news and interference in domestic politics because just like Putin, they feel like we've been doing that to them for the last 15 years and the shoe's on the other foot and they love it. Uh, um, uh, so uh, we're starting to see you know, a, a kind of coordinated pushback on what the uh, Obama administration had done on cybersecurity, which was uh, naming and shaming and uh, building on attribution. Uh, um, and um, we'll, we'll see pushback and maybe a hope on the part of the Chinese and the Russians that this administration will do less of it. Well, except that what was interesting, and you mentioned it in, in the in the wrap up, is that the Chinese were, were definitely skeptical of the U.S. government's attribution of the hacks, although they have uh, their own reasons for casting doubt on the U.S. ability to to do that attribution. But in terms of the deterrence value, it's not that they said that that. Um, that Obama's actions were misguided. They basically said, if you're going to hit somebody, you hit them as hard as they hit you, um, which sounds a little more Trumpian than um, than uh, than kind of endorsing a more lily-livered approach. Yeah, it sounds more Bakerian. Uh, uh, I, I guess I do agree with them on that. Uh, okay. Um, well, and uh, in uh, actual uh, uh, lawsuit news, uh, ADT settled uh, one of the first Internet of Things security suits. Uh, Jennifer, what happened? So uh, ADT was hit with a series of five proposed actions in uh, state and federal courts around the country, focusing, of course, on some plaintiff-friendly jurisdictions. And the suits alleged that uh, ADT deceived consumers by omitting information about the uh, vulnerability of their wireless home security systems to hacking. Uh, they filled the complaints alleged that essentially ADT failed to disclose that the systems were unencrypted. So this week there is news that ADT has settled those suits um, as a nationwide class. And the terms haven't been disclosed yet, but it's just a very inter- interesting development um, because, as you said, it's one of the first settlements that's out there that relates to uh, the vulnerability rather than an actual breach. All right. Well, we'll we'll be very interested to see that. So come back and tell us when we have the settlement terms. Uh, uh, Other things that we could cover quickly. uh, uh, There's no surprise that the uh, I think it was the FISA court decided that uh, uh, it's not going to second guess the administration on uh, what parts of its uh, decisions can be uh, declassified and which ones can't. Is that right, Alan? Yes. So the, the ACLU and, the, and, and Yale had filed an action um, to access the redacted portions of some of the decisions that the court made public uh, addressing bulk data collection um, and made the argument that the court could go ahead and, and release the unredacted versions on its own uh, authority. The court said that, um, uh, that number one, it doesn't uh, have jurisdiction to unredact uh, legal documents. That's really a request. For the um, for the executive branch under its own independent classification. That was always that was always a loser. There was no hope that that, that they were going to do that because once they start down that path, it's an endless morass of uh, 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 fine-tuned decision making that the courts just aren't really equipped to do. 
the court also rejected the idea that the public had a First Amendment right to access the classified parts of the opinion based on the assertions that the ACLU had made uh, because they hadn't shown how keeping that information secret causes harm. Now, that's something of a circular argument, but it definitely uh, definitely indicated that the, the FISA court really sees that this is an argument between, uh, between the ACLU uh, and the administration. All right. Uh, Lloyds Bank has a it had an enormous DDoS attack uh, uh, recently uh, uh, that I think they're probably still fighting. Uh, uh, Maury, I don't know if uh, if that's the case, but uh, um, I'm guessing that sometime in the next six months we're going to discover that it wasn't just a DDoS attack, but that the DDoS attack was a diversion as they tried to steal money from Lloyds. Uh, that's the way these things usually go when it's a uh, financial uh, uh, target. Uh, um, boy, uh, are they still under attack, or have they finally beaten it back? You know, I I think that there are constant um, reports of UK banks being attacked, and I... From what I've heard, that the response is still going on. I was fascinated by a recent article that said a lot of these DDoS attacks were based in Minecraft wars, you know, different Minecraft server. This was came out of Brian Krebs. And, you know, it's really interesting to think about what the actual story behind this stuff is. Um, and, you know, I think your story that this is probably related to stealing money is, is likely to be right. So it's it, this is the DDoS is the one area where script kiddies and you know sort of punks are still capable of really um, impacting large sophisticated institutions. Hacking into uh, J.P. Morgan or Lloyd's is much 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 harder. Really requires a an expenditure of real resources that uh, uh, kids who are uh, uh, fighting over Minecraft can't uh, muster. But DDoS attacks get easier as uh, there are more and more things on the net with weaker and weaker security that can be taken over by the Mirai. Uh, bot and uh, turned into an army very easily. So, you know, I uh, uh, that has always made me uh, think that DDoS was a dumb thing to worry about, uh, that we ought to be able to fix it. Um, but it actually just keeps getting worse. So uh, denial of service attacks uh, uh, are going to get more attention uh, than they have in the last few years, I'm, I'm predicting, because they're getting easier to carry off. Yeah, and you can't fix these uh, Internet of Things devices like you can patch um, computers and even mobile phones. Yeah. Well, and the other thing um, that people, that, that kids do, uh, is they take over Twitter accounts that they like uh, because they like the name. Uh, um, and uh, Twitter's security is okay for a mass market service, but not exactly uh, uh Proof against national uh, attacks, uh, and um, there is now some real worry that because uh, President Trump is apparently using his old Android to uh, uh, tweet in the in the evenings when he's not doing anything sensitive, just watching TV, uh, and he likes his his Android, uh, but it's an old one. Security can't be updated. Uh, uh, the possibility of taking over his account or taking over that uh, uh, phone is pretty real. And uh, then um, we could have tweets that 
seem to come from the real uh, uh, Donald Trump, but are actually coming from somebody else. Uh, uh, my prediction is that will happen, and my prediction is also that there will be a- occasional times when uh, the White House just says about some tweet, oh yeah, sorry, that was hack. That was a hack. Um, uh, so it gives them de- a-, a new level of deniability if they want it. Yeah, suggesting our podcast is a um, will be an ongoing project. <laughs> exactly. You know, we're going to have plenty to talk about over the next uh, four years. Uh, uh, okay. Thanks to uh, all of you, uh, to Alan Cohn, to Maury Shank, to Jennifer Quinn Barabanoff. And now to our interview with Corin Stone, who is the executive director of the National Security Agency, the number three job there. Uh, uh, so, Corin, uh, uh, can you quickly tell us how you ended up in this position? Sure. Well, I'm uh, a lawyer by trade, so it is not obvious how I would end up as the executive director of the National Security well, it's Agency. Every lawyer, right? <laughs> absolutely. But um, I was working at the DNI's office in a senior policy position, and um, Admiral Rogers came into the agency, and he had a fabulous dep- deputy who was also from uh, NSA and had a deep expertise in the work of NSA, as did Admiral Rogers. And he looked around and said, "I'd like someone different for the number three in the agency. I'd like to bring." in an outside perspective, someone who understands the intelligence community, but who will bring some different thought um, into our senior leadership team and make uh, a different um, triumvirate of leaders here. So he he looked around and asked the Office of the Director of National Intelligence if they had ideas for people who um, had some expertise in the community and the inner workings of the community that might be a good um, partner on the leadership team, and, and they turned to me. So you learned all of the NSA equities by dealing with the, all the fires that uh, Edward Snowden uh, set, uh, I assume, that that, that, that gave you a fairly uh, uh, hefty introduction to NSA. Well, in 2013, when um, that came out, I was actually um, the chief policy officer at the ODNI and Prior to that, I had been the deputy general counsel at the ODNI, and so I had a lot of um, interaction with the agency in the areas of um, legal and policy oversight, um, compliance, civil liberties, and privacy. And so when that did happen, you know, I had some visibility at that level. And so coming into the agency in 2014, after a lot of that fallout had happened, um, was really eye-opening to me. You know, I, I had certainly heard a lot about the culture of compliance at NSA and how seriously people take that and, and what that looks like from the legal perspective, but walking the halls at NSA is something completely different where you see that everyone knows about compliance. Everyone understands what it is um, to take um, care with U.S. persons' information and make sure that we're treating that the right way. Um, and so the pervasive culture that is there was something so interesting to feel as a lawyer, mm-hmm. not as a practitioner, but to have done the oversight role and then to come in and see that you know throughout the agency, no matter who you ask, people understood that and felt very deeply about that. So it was quite an interesting time period to come in. So when I was general counsel, I used to occasionally say, I don't know which is worse, having an engineer tell me what the law is or going back to my office, spending four hours doing the research and discovering he's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I went to NSA, the director and I were the only two outsiders as a practical matter. Uh, now, now there's at least three, I know. What um, As an outsider... Um, I always wondered how embracing the culture really is. Uh, of course, they have to defer to the uh, leadership, uh, um, uh, but 
you always got a sense that they expected to be there long after you were gone uh, and that that had an effect on how seriously they took your advice. Uh, has that changed? Uh, what, what's your sense as a, an outsider coming in on a position of authority at the agency? A lot of people ask me about that, and I'll tell you, I've had such an incredible welcome from everyone, and people really seem to um, appreciate the different perspective that I bring. People seek it out in many instances and ask for my views, um, and I think some of that is that there's certainly a recognition these days that it's it's useful and healthy to have an alternative viewpoint. Um, I think also, you know, I've been very clear when I came in, these are some things that I know and these are some things that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in folks at the agency teaching me more about their business and their expertise and getting me up to speed. And I think people appreciate that I recognize the skills that they have and that then they can turn around and recognize the skills that I have. And we recognize that they're different and complementary. Um, and I think people have been, as I say, extremely welcoming and open to the ideas that I've brought to the table. So one of the things that, as an outsider, uh, I always thought the director and the general counsel were expected to do is to deal with the outside. Uh, I, I, most of the people at the agency didn't really want to deal with the outside world, uh, I, and it wasn't necessarily rewarded, but you know we're in a different world. You kind of have to. So how much of your time do you spend dealing with people outside of the fort? Um, I spend, you know, a moderate amount of time, not a ton. I think our director um, spends a lot of time outside. The deputy director spends some, and then I spend some, again, sort of accordingly. Um, but it's interesting that I think more people in the agency are interested in doing that now because they feel very proud of what they do, right. and they want to be able to talk about that in a way that the American public can understand. And I think that's something we've seen not go well in the past, where folks have thought they were communicating to the American people, to Congress about what we do. Um, but it turned out that that the message wasn't received, that sometimes we were speaking English, but not actually English. You know, as we talk to engineers right. and computer scientists, <laughs> we have to translate sometimes. And um, I think more people now are very interested in understanding um, how to talk um, publicly, and they want to do that in a different way. So that's something that we're working on, um, allowing people to get out there more, talking to the friends and family, getting to universities, talking to students, people who are interested, so that we're less of a mystery and that people really understand who we are, what we do, why we do it, um, and that it's not a big surprise when folks hear about the NSA. So you, you, you could learn a lot from the FBI's culture, which expects all of their agents to be able to go out and explain what they do and to talk in public about the, the mission and uh, the constraints they're under. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, you, you, you can't open a bottle of wine without them showing up if you invite them. I, well, <laughs> I, of course, uh, that's the bureau they would they would show up for an opening of a bottle of wine but uh, um, you can uh, uh, you can be sure that if they're invited to talk about uh, the um, uh, the bureau it doesn't matter how hostile the audience is expected to be they'll be there and it makes a difference uh, no matter how hostile you are if somebody is standing there and they're talking like you and they sound like you and they uh, they're just another an ordinary person like you it's hard to hate them but if it's just a big blank wall, you can you can project Oliver Stone's fantasies on it. Right. And we want people to be comfortable talking uh, in their communities. And we want people to be able to talk about the work they do and take pride in that work. And I think people are excited to talk about the way they help protect the nation. And so, you know, as long as we do that properly and we're careful to protect the classified information, I think we really should be empowering people more. So how is morale out of the fort? They obviously have been through the Snowden stuff, um, but, you know, 
that was bad, and there was a lot of misunderstanding and uh, attacks that were completely unfair on the on the agency. We sort of got through that, I think. Uh, and then the Harold Martin stuff came, and the Shadow Brokers stuff with tools that looked like they'd been taken from from NSA. You don't have to confirm that, uh, uh, but that's sure what it looked like. Uh, and uh, uh, it seems to me that's a that's a second blow and maybe a more personal blow. Uh, um, how are how are people reacting to this? So, of course, I can't talk about any particular investigation, but I will say to your point that any leaks, any unauthorized disclosures, of course, has an impact on morale. You know, we've got a dedicated workforce. They're extremely um, sophisticated, technical experts working very long hours on tough, tough problems, sometimes for years at a time. And when someone who is a peer or a colleague or someone they knew or someone they didn't know decides to break trust with the U.S. government, the American people and with their peers and colleagues, um, that's something that does deal a blow to morale. People are upset about that, and it's difficult to deal with. And so it's something, obviously, there have been insiders and insider threats for decades, and it's something that every agency deals with when it happens to them. But um, it's something we take very seriously, and we're working very hard to make sure that our security standards and processes are um, the best that they can possibly be. But at the end of the day, it comes down to trust. You, you, you kind of have to trust people. Um, I mean, I uh, until I took it off my keychain, I walked into the building several times with a, uh, a thumb drive on my keychain, uh, and nobody nobody frisked me, nobody seized the the, uh, the thumb drive. Uh, um, it, what do you do now that it's that easy to take large? amounts of data. I mean, that's more or less what uh, Snowden did. Well, and that's an important point. You know, in the past decades, when we had insider threats around the community, um, they were taking things out in hard copy. And so, of course, it was incredibly damaging, but the amount of information was was a little bit more limited. Now, when you have removable media, it's a different level of harm. I mean, it's extremely harmful to national security when you have that kind of information going out. Um, and it's just so easy. And yeah. so, to your point, um, we are, we're trying to do everything we can to um, um, both with technology and with um, personnel security practices, make sure that we are able to understand what um, what uh, is going in and out of the building, what people have access to. But on the flip side, we want to make sure that we um, don't deter the very people that we need to execute the mission from from being a part of our workforce. If you show that kind of, if you actually started frisking people, uh, first you wouldn't you wouldn't catch people who actually wanted to sneak it out, and it would imply a lack of trust that uh, erodes trust. Exactly. And so it's a really difficult balance that we're trying to strike. One of the things that we're doing um, in order to address this is something that we're calling the um, campaign of, for the culture of security. And it's kind of like we're do, we did with the culture of compliance. We want everyone to feel that security is their job and is their mission. A lot of times people are doing their jobs and they're doing what they're asked to do. And they think, well, I don't have to worry about security. That's the security officer's job or that's the job of the people that work in security. And we want everybody to understand that security is everyone's mission. And if we don't have that culture, if people don't feel it's on them to make sure that the information they're working with is secure, um, then we won't have a mission. And so I think we are trying to appeal to the person, the whole person, because we can put all sorts of technical measures in place and processes, and we will and we do. But we also have to recognize that they only go so far. And again, we don't want to deter those people from working for us. And right. so it's really important to understand that balance and make sure that people feel a sense of ownership and responsibility for security. Yeah, I, it, it is, it's very hard, and it's very hard 
test people realistically uh, or even remind them. I mean, I, I think the at the end of the day, you have to be truly paranoid. You have to think, I am doing this because I don't want bad guys to have access to this. Uh, and you have to think of them, um, as security measures, as defeating an enemy as opposed to complying with what the security officer wants. That's right. And, and you know, I guess, unfortunately, the more this happens, the more people understand that. Um, but it's difficult. I mean, nobody wants to go in and, you know, have things searched. And, you know, uh, there's, you know, it, it's just not fun, but we all do it. And even I, if, you know, there's a random inspection, I'm happy to open my bag and show what's in there, too. It's just important to your point. It's, it's about defeating the enemy and making sure that, you know, we're not accidentally doing something to enable people. So, when I was at the uh, fort, they used to have, if you had any classified stuff out, first had to go into the safe, but occasionally, um, if you had papers out, you had to cover your desk with a black cloth, if I remember this right. And then people would occasionally come by and look to see if there was anything lying on your desk, uh, uh, if your uh, um, uh, file, uh, 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 your files were actually locked or whether you had just closed them um, and you'd get written up. Um, you still do that? Well, there's no black cloths anymore, yeah. but there certainly are security uh, inspections, and you can get written up if you don't handle the security, the classification, uh, the classified information properly. So it's sort of the same, maybe a little bit of a technological upgrade. So let me let me ask about the the reorg um, NSA 21. Um, you know, reorgs happen in government. That's um, they're they're something that happens every ten years or so. Uh, this was a big one because it uh, got rid of the two um, principal missions, which is offense and defense, uh, and instead melded them into a, what you might call a workflow model. I guess uh, capabilities, research, uh, and the capabilities might be defense, they might be offense. The research might be defense, might be offense. Um, I don't fully understand how what the thinking was behind that, but how's it going? And uh, should we be worried about whether defense is getting buried someplace? So we didn't get rid of those two missions. Our, we have two critical missions, that's signals intelligence and information assurance, and those continue to be our missions. Um, NSA 21, as you mentioned, stands for NSA in the 21st century. And that was an activity that our director um, started about a year ago uh, that looked at NSA end-to-end. He basically came in and said, hey, we're doing great work in signals intelligence and information assurance. We're at the top of our game, but the world around us is changing. Cyber, the nature of cyber is changing. The na- nature of networks is changing. The Budget is flat at best. We have intense competition for our talent. Will we continue to be the best in the world if we don't look critically and make some changes? And so there are a series of studies that looked at how we support our people from recruitment to retirement. What is our culture? What do we do with lessons learned? Um, How do we assess risk in our operations? And what does our structure look like? And a, a series of recommendations and initiatives came from that. The, there are three main focuses for our initiatives, um, people integration and integration, and those look at making sure we are supporting our people from recruitment to retirement, that we are um, training our leaders to be the best leaders and supporting our people, that we are integrated across military and civilian, that we are integrated 
with headquarters and our outlying elements, that we are integrated across signals, intelligence, and information assurance uh, activities. Um, and then innovation, making sure we actually foster a culture of innovation, foster creativity, allow innovation to flow in from the outside. So to your question on the um, integration of the information assurance and signals intelligence missions, that's something that is um, very critical in our view because we're reflecting the way of the world these days. We have foreign intelligence adversaries who aren't thinking about only foreign intelligence. They're thinking about how to attack our national security systems. Those are emissions that we at NSA are meant to defend. And so our view is we need to make sure that we are aligned and working together uh, in the two disciplines to ensure that we are informed on both sides and bringing the technical expertise and the foundational experience and analytic experience that we have to bear on both problems equally so that if we're learning something in a foreign intelligence space, we're using that to defend our national security missions and making sure that we absolutely are doing everything we can to have the best defense possible. And as we're defending our missions, if there's something we learn that can help us with our foreign adversaries, we're also applying it in that space. So there are distinct authorities, as you know, and that Mm -hmm. continues, and we have to handle those carefully. But we want to make sure that we're not unnecessarily hampering ourselves by not using all of the aspects of the two missions in order to fully bring our skill sets to bear on every problem that we face. So um, tell me one good thing that has come from the reorg that you can point to. You you can tell me one bad thing, but I'm guessing you'd rather talk about one good thing. (laughs) Well, we have already seen more agility based on that kind of integration. We've seen that we've been able to get to um, our problem sets more quickly. We've seen that when we come to the cyber defense world, we're actually incorporating more information on a regular basis. So we had pockets of great integration before, um, but now it's more systemically set up so that it's natural for people to be collaborating in that way. We've stood up a couple of um, enterprise functional teams um, that are basically cross-functional teams on a a broader scale, and we're dedicating resources to particular topics and making sure that we're actually focusing on those areas in a very integrated and focused way. And so we're seeing those really bear fruit because um, uh, we get results quickly in in a more agile way, and they're, they're holistic. We know that we're looking at the coin from both sides. If you think of signals, intelligence, and information assurance, it's two sides of the same coin. And so we're, we're yeah, melding those. Yes and no. Yes, it is. But in my experience, at least, the people who do those two things are often very different personality types. It's like the difference between offensive linemen and line, linebackers. Uh, one of them, you know, uh, there are rule followers. There are people who are methodical and determined and uh, don't want to break uh, any rules and follow a lot of procedures, and, and they tend to be the defenders. Uh, and then there are people who just want to cause havoc, uh, and they tend to be the attackers. Better parties on the uh, offensive side. Um they, so if if that's so, if I'm right about that, uh, I, I, it seems to me that in the end, you're going to have pockets where you have to be doing the defense. You, you, you still have to be talking about defense. You have to if you're going to treat it as a mission, um, you're going to have pockets of people in all all over the agency who see defense as their principal job. Sure. Well, so we absolutely want subject matter experts in both offense and defensive side. And just to be clear, we follow the rules on both sides of the house all I the time. I However, um, I know that it's true that defenders like to defend more so maybe than do other things um, and vice versa. And so it's true that there may be um, some uh, different personalities that go with that, but we've really been encouraging people to actually do tours outside 
outside of their comfort zone. We right. really want people to kind of learn and explore um, areas that uh, use their expertise, but in a different way. It would probably make them better defenders or better That's better true. foreign right. intelligence. Right. If, you, uh, if you haven't done pen- penetration testing, you don't really understand why you're doing the things you're doing. To exactly. Okay. And so our view is that they'll be better for those diversity tours. So then let me ask you a defense question that, that comes with the other reorg, which is Cyber Command, which may eventually get, it is really already separate to a significant degree and could end up with a different head. Uh, um, my impression is that a big part of what Cyber Command does is actually defend DOD networks, the networks that are part of the, the central uh, of, of the combatant commands at a minimum. Um, and that maybe even they have more people doing defense than offense. Um, if they, if I'm right about that, how do you draw the line in the event of a separation of the NSA and uh, Cyber Command uh, to, to make sure there isn't a seam when you're doing protection? Well, you know, um, Cyber Command and NSA are already two separate agencies, as you noted. We have a, a single head, um, but we already are navigating the um, activities that we do and making sure that we're integrated and working them in a deconflicted manner. And so the fact is that um, Cyber Command is charged with perfecting, per- protecting the DOD information networks. And we're happy about that because NSA is charged with um, protecting all national security systems, um, which is well beyond the mm-hmm. DOD networks. And so to the sent that uh, Cyber Command can do the DOD networks and we can provide tools and techniques and expertise, analysis, intelligence to support Cyber Command in that role, that's perfect for us. And then we can continue to focus on the protection of the other national security systems. And then we do also provide an information secu- uh, assurance capability as well to all of the national security systems, including the DOD networks, which is something like, um, you know, certifying crypto cryptography that's used right. to protect um, information. And so uh, we have a couple of different roles that we play. And I think, you know, my my personal view is it's not a problem because this is how we deconflict um, across many topics with Cyber Command. And that's why um, it's so great that we've been integrated in this way for so long. We sit side by side, we work together, we're in many meetings together, and we consciously practice the processes that we're going to need going forward, whether we have one head or two heads. And so really, from our perspective, if the dual hat splits, it won't make a huge difference, frankly, because well, we're always you, you going to be. If you can't agree with Cyber Command now, there's, there's, there's one admiral who can make the call. I don't know. Where do you take it if you have a disagreement about what you say? You need to do this. And the defenders who are actually charged with doing that say, there's no way we're going to be able to do that. Uh, you know, come up with more realistic guidance. And you say, no, uh, uh, this is what you have to do. We, this is what the threat requires. Um, do you go to the Joint Chiefs? So uh, I think you go to the Secretary of Defense and the DNI um, because the DNI has the intel role. Right. Um, and you're right that at the moment it's a little bit easier in that you have one uh, chief yeah. to to help weigh the two sides and make a, a decision. But frankly, if either the Secretary of Defense or the DNI didn't like that decision, one of them might elevate it in any event. And so yeah. um, you already kind of have that. It's true that it's a little bit easier when it's a level down, but there's certainly an avenue. So let me, let me talk a little bit about the other conflict that I see coming up between Cyber Command and uh, NSA, and it's the conflict between uh, uh, the guys who like to blow things up and the guys who like to uh, steal secrets. Uh, and you can do both of those from, from a network, but you can't easily do both of them at the same time. Uh, and so if Cyber Command's job is mainly to cause networks to fail in one way or another, 
uh, and NSA's job reverts to being uh, stealing as much information as possible from a network. There's bound to be conflicts over particular networks. Are we going to keep it up or are we going to take it down? Uh, how do you resolve those now and how are you going to resolve them in the future? Sure. So I, um, I'm not sure if I would describe those roles exactly that same way. I think Cyber Command's role, although I can't speak for them, but it's going to be both offensive and defensive, as we just mentioned. And, and NSA will continue to have both roles as well. We already in, in this world and in every world have the operational and intelligence gain loss assessments that have to be done. So, Currently, we're talking about the cyber environment where um, it's a cyber command and uh, NSA conversation, perhaps, on what the gain loss is if you're going to have an operation versus an intelligence um, effect. Um, but we do that with other combatant commands across the government all the time. In every kind of operation that you have in the government, there is an assessment about whether you're going to lose intelligence if you carry out that operation. So today, CENTCOM could say, I want this network taken down, and then NSA might say, are you kidding? We're getting great stuff from that network, uh, and you have to resolve it. That's right, and it would be ours to justify why we shouldn't take it down, and it would be theirs to justify why what they would gain from that, and then someone above our grade pay grade will make that decision. So... Uh, it does strike me that um, if you've got a director of NSA with three stars and a combatant commander with four, uh, it's likely that the four stars win those fights. Uh, uh, not always, of course. You can always you can say this is just nuts. I'm going to fight him despite the star. But that, those are uh, career limiting decisions. I. Uh, is there some risk that if Cyber Command and NSA are split up uh, and we keep a military head for uh, uh, NSA, that Intel will end up with the short end of the stick? Well, I think, um, you know, again, the director of NSA, even if it's a three-star, can appeal to the DNI. And once ah, they do that, okay. the DNI can go to the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I, but I think that's also yes. part of the conversation about whether it should change to a civilian head. So Yes, I, 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 I think it makes, it makes it more sensible to have a civilian head. But you reminded me, as I always used to say, uh, um, there are disadvantages to having two parents. Exactly. Sometimes it's good to have a mom and a dad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you, you say, no, no, <laughs> yeah. my brother's being mean to me. And exactly. Dad takes his side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so um, one of the things that uh, I know you wanted to talk about a little was diversity uh, at NSA uh, and I always thought that in some respects, NSA was the most diverse agency I'd ever seen. You see people with hair down to their shoulders and uh, tattoos on their face uh, and uh, and then standard bureaucratic uh, uh, dress, the sort of uh, uh, sport coat and uh, uh, slacks uh, and, uh, and then military uh, uh, uniforms of all kinds uh, straight out of the desert or on parade. Uh, but... Uh, that's not how diversity is usually defined. I, I, and I wondered what your efforts have been and how successful you think you've been. Well, you're right that we do have a level of diversity that's extraordinary and, and wonderful, and it does bring a diversity of thought um, when you have that kind of diverse backgrounds. We are also very focused, of course, on um, traditional diversity, and we're looking at um, recruiting in all sorts of different kinds of places in order to kind of tap into the fabric of America and make sure that we're reflecting the diversity that we have here in our country. We're looking at the um, historically black colleges and universities among many. We have several in our own backyard, Morgan State, Harvard. 
uh, Howard and that, that kind of thing. So we're trying to make sure that we're taking advantage of all those folks that are around us with these incredible skills. We're looking at programs and we participate in programs that are in high school, middle school, elementary school. And the idea here is not necessarily to cultivate NSA employees, but rather to cultivate, cultivate those skill sets for our nation. We need these kinds of skills, the STEM skills that will defend our nation, whether it's in the private sector and the critical infrastructure sector or in the federal government. And so we feel it's our mission and our goal to help inspire people to be interested and excited about this role, make sure we're um, allowing for people to learn about what we do. We have the Gen Cyber Camps, which you may have heard of, where we run the, these out of colleges and universities. It's a week-long camp for kids who are um, – in, uh, I think from elementary school all the way to high school, they get a, a week long of free cyber defense and cybersecurity camp just to expose them to what that's like and give them those, some of those skills and just pique their interest, really. Right. It's a field where you have to have some native ability to, to and an enthusiasm for it and a willingness to learn something new all the time. Uh, um, and so the only way to know whether you've got that is not to look at people's grades, but to, uh, to actually watch them do it. That's right. And to really explain to them what they can do with these skills. It's probably a little bit more obvious these days, but when I was in high school, I was really good at math, and I had no idea what I would do with it. And I said, I don't want to be a math teacher. And so that so, was so it. Law school I dropped it. Law exactly. Right. Do, yeah. And it turns out, you know, if I had known, I don't know if I would have been good at it, but I might have been interested in trying. So I, I can tell you who should be the unpaid consultant to NSA on how to make this work. It is Phyllis Schneck's mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she raised two girls, Melanie Schneck, who used to work here doing cybersecurity with me and who now does cybersecurity at, I think, uh, George Washington or American University, uh, uh, a very prominent uh, um, a cybersecurity lawyer. Uh, and Phyllis Schneck, who, of course, started uh, cybersecurity companies, went to DHS, was number two and mm -hmm. the top really technical person uh, on cybersecurity. Um, you should ask their mom, how she raised those kids <laughs> uh, and what she would do to encourage uh, uh, girls and women to, to get deep in the field. Uh, I'm sure she'd do it uh, yeah. uh, for you. So, uh, uh, all right. Um, one last question. Um, BPD-28 came through when you were at ODNI, I assume. It or, did. Uh, uh, and so you probably had some role in PPD-28. Uh, I'm a profound skeptic about the whole idea. I think if you start saying we're going to have the same protections for foreigners as we have for Americans, that you end up uh, uh, complicating your mission and probably diluting the protections that you give to Americans uh, um, and the restraints on how long you keep stuff and the like. Uh, um, what do you think is its future? What should its future be? Well, PPD-28, um, I think, has a lot of merit. I mean, there are a lot of um, important principles that are laid out in PPD-28, and we, over the last year or two, have been able to make it work. So, obviously, we take our direction on what we're going to collect and what we're going to produce intelligence on from the priorities of the president and the director of national intelligence. And so, PPD-28 is um, a mechanism for us to understand what those priorities are and what those priorities aren't, and to ensure that we're um, transparent with the public about how we protect privacy and civil liberties. It plays a really important role, I think, with the American people. A lot of the times, um, the way I think about it is we were already protecting privacy and civil liberties. We were doing uh, 
all of this in accordance with the law and in accordance with the guidance that we received. And so writing it down in this way that is transparent and that people can understand is okay with me. I'm glad if people feel confident that we're carrying out our signals intelligence mission in accordance with the principles that they believe is important. And so, you know, as I say, I think we've been able to make it work. Um, obviously, you'll find critics of PPD-28 as well. But I think there are a lot of activities out there that rely on PPD-28, not to mention uh, at least one, the Privacy Shield, which does hinge on um, PBD 28, which is important to a lot of folks in America. And so um, from sure, our perspective, if, if you think the Europeans should tell us how to collect intelligence, well, <laughs> or if you want to do business in the European market, well, um, you know, safely, maybe, uh, they, they, right? nobody has ever said to them, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, 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 they, they just keep, they keep threatening our private sector uh, and asking us to make more concessions. And, and this, this must be the 20th negotiation in which they've sold us the same mule again. <laughs> uh, and somehow the mule always wanders back to their uh, uh, farm. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced that we should just keep taking that. Uh, I, and I don't think they care how good our intelligence is. It's not their job to protect even Europeans, let alone Americans. Uh, uh, they are, it's, uh, they're a Johnny One note on this stuff. Uh, and I suspect that if we pushed back, they would change their tune. But nobody knows because yeah. they never have. Um, all right. I, we usually ask our guests if they have any other speaking engagements uh, or uh, documents coming out that people should be looking for. I'm guessing. That <laughs> nope. Have too many. Okay. <laughs> no documents, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Uh, okay. So uh, you are the first guest to come into the studio since we started our policy of giving our guests uh, this wonderful commemorative Step to Cyber Law podcast uh, coffee mug complete with logo, uh, guaranteed to be under $20 and therefore to meet any federal gift limit. <laughs> I am so lucky. You thank are. you so much. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, Corin Stone, thank you so much for uh, uh, for coming in. And uh, uh, if everybody else who goes out to engage the public does as well as you did today, uh, uh, NSA is going to have a total transformation in the public esteem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So thanks to Corin Stone, to Alan Cohn, to Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, and to Maury Schenk. Uh, as always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Send us your questions, your suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave us a really good review on iTunes. Uh, uh, I've noticed uh, um, we've gotten practically all five stars except from a couple of people who said, oh, that crazy right winger, I just, you know, he, he just sucks. Uh, so if you... Uh, if you disagree with that view, go in and um, uh, dilute those one-star votes from people who hate us. Uh, this has been episode 148 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We have an exciting 2017 ahead of us. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing from Jay Healy at Columbia University School for International uh, and Public Affairs, uh, I think, next week. Uh, and if you've got a guest interviewee to suggest uh, and they end up on the show, we'll not only give them a coveted Stepto Cyber Law Podcast mug, but we'll give you one as well. And we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>